Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com And we are recording. Yes, we are recording and it stopped raining. Finally. We had a lot of rain the last few days. After I mean, having none all summer. I know. I was like, is that still the Hurricane Ian sitting out there just churning? I didn't I, I couldn't believe the length of the thunderstorm on uh, on Wednesday. I don't I don't think we've had a, a a sustained thunderstorm like that that I can remember in a long time. Um, it just kept going. I completely agree. In my whole life, I've never lived through. I'm scared of thunder, to be honest. And I even had my hands over my ears wow. yesterday while I was <laughs> eating lunch. I was in the conference room at the Southampton Press, which of course is windowless. And I, I heard this rumbling and I thought maybe a truck had like backed into the building or something. And then I came out and saw how dark it was outside. I'm like, okay, this is this is something else going on. And so. the night before also, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night and I think there were two or three thunderstorms that came rolling through. That would have been Tuesday night. I agree. I woke up too, uh, Brian. It's um, my whole life. I mean, it was really 24 hours or more of, th- of a thunderstorming. Yeah. Well, you guys are all tired of hearing about my dogs, but I did come home yesterday from work. And, um, you know, I, I have to close the bathroom door because the one dog sneaks into the bathroom and gets behind it and shuts the door. So... Um, and traps himself in there. So when I leave in the morning, I'm, I close the door to make sure that it's latched so he can't get in there. But during the thunderstorm yesterday, they must have decided that the bedroom would be um, a suitable alternative. Got into the bedroom and closed the door behind them. And I came home to them <laughs> whining behind the door. As long as he doesn't lock the door, I think that you'll be Okay. Yeah, I just that's worry when, about them being in the room. That's when you have teenagers, a teenage dog on your hands. Yeah, don't give them a key, though. <laughs> all right well, we're going to launch into our introductions that's uh bill sutton there behind the mic hitting the record button as usual hey bill hi annette i'm bill sutton i'm the managing editor of the express news group also with us today is joe shaw hey joe hey annette i'm joe shaw i'm the executive editor and by the way i'm joined by my kitten molly who's decided to <laughs> spend the podcast just off camera gnawing lovingly on my finger so if you hear me yelp in pain every once in a while that's what it is i saw you making faces i wasn't sure what yeah it was about but she likes she's at that gnawing stage that kitten gnawing stage right. sharp little teeth yeah very and she likes to get into the back teeth and yeah yeah so i'll be yelping every once in a while it's like that little bunny rabbit and holy grail <laughs> exactly <Yes>. kyle so. <laughs> also here is brendan o'reilly hey brendan how are you hi everybody my name is brendan i am the deputy managing editor and also with us today is the illustrative Brian Boyhan. Hey, Brian. Hey, folks. Uh, I'm Brian Boyan. I am the former editor and publisher of the Sag Harbor Express. And my name is Annette Hankel, and I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And also with us today is a very special guest whose voice you may have heard an, uh, a little bit earlier, and that is Nada Berry. And Nada is a longtime Sag Harbor resident, and she was also friends with the subject of our topic today, which is John Steinbeck, the famous writer. And we're going to talk a little bit about Steinbeck, uh, about his his legacy in the village, and a bit about what hopes are as far as his home on the co- on Sag Harbor Cove, which is currently on the market for more money than all of us together could probably scrape up to buy. So, <laughs> that's, so hi, Nada. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Annette. Thank you for joining us. So right before we came on the air, Brian was just going to launch into a story about the Black Bowie, which was a um, a well-known bar on Main Street in Sag Harbor that um, Steinbeck frequented with his friends. And Brian, do you want to talk a little bit more about that Black Bowie and sort of its reputation and um, the story that you want to share? Yeah, the black buoy is uh, in in some ways central to uh, this conversation. Uh, back, I think, when uh, Steinbeck lived here, there were a number of uh, bars, kind of like it is today, uh, but a little bit different than it was today. It was much more of a working class kind of a town. 
And uh, one of the bars that he frequented was uh, the Black Bowie, which was on Main Street. I wound up working in that uh, building, in that bar, uh, when it had become J.W. Ryerson's. And it's uh, where I learned a lot about Steinbeck's time in Sag Harbor from the, uh, the people who would come into the bar and share stories. <clears throat> I just wanted to underscore the kind of a place that the Black Bowie was and uh, in many ways, the kind of place Sag Harbor was. <clears throat> when uh, Michael Moody, who uh, I knew uh, from my days tending bar at, the, uh, at Ryerson's, uh, when he was dating uh, Susan Oy, uh, Susan Oy uh, worked uh, front of house at the American Hotel for many years. Uh, I think probably some of your uh, podcast listeners may remember her. Um, and when they were first dating, uh, Michael had been living out here and he, uh, he invited Susan out to spend the weekend. And uh, the, the first place that he took Susan to uh, was the Black Bowie. That night, uh, as had happened on uh, uh, several other occasions, somebody had been tossed through the front window of the Black Bowie <laughs> during a fight. Does that actually happen in real life? and was unconscious on the sidewalk in the in front of the door of the black buoy so when mike brought susan to the black buoy she had to step over this body uh, <laughs> on the sidewalk and that was susan's introduction to um to sag harbor and the black buoy and i think that that's, <laughs> that's a really good point is and i think what people you know, and Nada, you can speak to this a lot, I'm sure, is the, the funny thing was about John Steinbeck is he wasn't looking for a fancy place to buy a beach house. He was looking for a place that sort of reminded him of working class Monterey in the West Coast. And when he and Elaine, from what I understand, discovered Sag Harbor in the yeah, mid 50s or so, he drove into town and he's like, this is it. This is the, the kind of gritty dock side town that I'm looking for. This, this is the kind of place we can step over exactly. a body on our way right. to a bar. <laughs> the kind of place where a Western breaks. But it's also, I think the story goes that when he saw the size of the yacht club here, which is just a teeny building, he remarked that this is the sort of town also that I would feel comfortable in. In other words, it wasn't this enormous building that comes often with yacht clubs and fancy mm. this and that. It was so low keyed in its appearance. It certainly wasn't the Hamptons. How did you and your, your husband, Bob, come to meet uh, John and Elaine Steinbeck, Nada? Well, Bob became his best friend, I think, through three major elements. One, that he owned the hardware store in Sag Harbor, and that uh, satisfied a lot of John's needs. And he also loved gadgets. And also, he owned Barron's Cove Marina, the major marina in Sag Harbor. And also something called the Upper Deck, which was built above the marina. And these were other places where also so much came out about John and his feelings about Sag Harbor and discussions that went on there. But primarily, Bob had been in the 101st Airborne as a captain and dropped behind the lines parachuting. Mm. Um, on D-Days and became part of the Band of Brothers. So this sort of individual uh, was the type of macho man that uh, John, I think, really uh, liked personally. Just talking about gadgets, I love the fact that uh, one day when I was going in the house, John happened his, into John's house, John happened to be right at the door with this thing in his hand, and he just sort of pushed it almost on me, saying, Nada, look, look, look what this does. You turn the top and you can print out labels. And subsequently, he printed out endless labels that he labeled all on the left side of his, his entranceway in his house. He also was liked, when you came in his house, there was a rack of hats. And he wanted everybody to pick out a hat and wear it. I'm sorry, it was not my thing, and I just didn't participate in that. If you want a few more stories, one of my favorites was um, at the end of the Whalers Festival, 
that used to take place um, now is the Harbor Fest. And there's the Long Wharf. And everybody just about had left the Long Wharf, but John was in an open uh, boat down below us. And a woman, a young, very pretty woman, begged one of the guys who was still there to put her aboard and let her get an autograph. And against all the things we were told not to do that sort of thing, this guy helped her get down on John's boat and then said, hey, Mr. Hemingway, will you please sign this piece of paper? <laughs> when John got up, he said, Nada, well, you told me this. I said, you didn't do that, did you? He said, of course I signed it. I signed it Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> I think he honestly did because John was such a joker in his way, yet he was a very shy person. And... Uh, but he got, I guess, a lot of his uh, feelings and things out. I love the idea that there's an there's an autograph out there of Ernest Hemingway, and somebody thinks they have something of value, and they take it somewhere, and they say, "Well, that's not an Ernest Hemingway signature. It's completely worthless." When in fact, it's probably worth just as much. <laughs> I, I, I agree with you, Joe. I think that I've always wondered what the outcome of that uh, <laughs> might have been. He did ask me, you know, and he was sounded serious <laughs> for a second. Nada, why don't we blow up the bridge and run a ferry to Long Beach? We make a lot of money that way. <laughs> <laughs> I just looked. He was up at the house at that moment, and I just looked at him. You know, come on, John, where are you coming from? Was my reaction. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. 27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton, carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website, SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations. Did uh, did John? Uh, uh, I, I know he was a boater, but uh, there was kind of like a cruising uh, boat cruising thing that was going on back then, wasn't there? Where you guys would go over to Block Island, or well, two two elements actually. One, he went out in his own boat fishing, uh, but also he went out in a bigger boat because once I was allowed to go with him uh, fishing out to the gut where there were so many bluefish. All I remember was after pulling in 25 personally, my arm was totally exhausted. <laughs> then this was enough. Mostly they went out just the guys. Though another story that I'd forgotten my daughter reminded me of was that on we went over to Connecticut. John's cannon was on the front of our boat which I was totally astounded with. And um, we were going over to Connecticut to, I think, meet Ed Stackpole, who was from Nantucket, and he was going to be down in Connecticut. It was a real authority on whaling and everything in the country at that time. And um, when we got to the up the river and the railroad bridge was closed, this uh, character who was with us, Bill King, he yelled up to the guy who opened the bridge, said, I've got the governor aboard this ship, open that bridge. <laughs> and by thumb, the bridge got opened. I was petrified that he was gonna go up there and shoot the cannon. <laughs> My goodness, that whole trip, that <laughs> cannon was not shot to my belief. 
because I would have really been extremely embarrassed. And anyhow, that's probably why you were never invited. I was too straight laced in relation to, and that's the same canon used now for the Harbor um, Harbor Fest. Tell the canon story. What is? I'm not familiar with the canon. From what I understand, John had the cannon on his property. And if you were at his house on your birthday, he would blow the cannon off once for every year that you were. (laughs) I heard that. I didn't, wasn't aware of that, but it certainly may have occurred. So Brian, did you have a cannon story? Uh, Only that I I think there's, uh, if I understand correctly, there's actually two cannons. And um, uh, there has been some conversation among the whaleboat crew <laughs> down on the beach about whether or not the one that we're firing off uh, now uh, uh, was actually Steinbeck's cannon or it was another cannon. Uh, I think that they were uh, shot off also like a cocktail hour, wasn't it? Like to signal like the beginning of cocktail hour or. I mean, the story that I know was that he shot. Uh, the cannon off and the neighbor whom he didn't get along with made remarks that he was shooting to uh, let the Germans know (laughs) whomever it was, uh, was signaling to them or some all sorts of wild stories, which of course Brian reminded me of the gnome story. That's Um, the one I want to hear. I want the gnome story. Can you tell the gnome story? (laughs) The gnome story is that I, at home, was not supposed to know about this, but it was a little bit difficult because it was alluded something was going on to me by Bob because he was going to be out all night and, you know, didn't sort of said, I've got to do something with John. Well, it turns out uh, on this neighbor's property, they he had bought from the hardware store these small gnomes. So John figured out why don't we get the larger ones from the hardware store and replace them and see if he even notices it. So get the next size. So they stayed up all night to see when he came out in the morning if he did or not. And I don't think they got any reaction. So the next day, they did it again with still larger ones. <laughs> at this point, all I know is that was the end of the story. Later on, they went back and replaced them with the small original gnomes. Even Bob was not too keen on this all happening, using his things, but he went along with John at this, this point. Interesting to me is that, you know, John was the most knowledgeable person one could ever meet. What I mean, he knew more about Scrimshaw, John Kennedy having a collection of it before we really were aware. And that uh, subsequently we started carrying it in the shop that I started 54 years ago, the Wharf Shop. And then from having traveled down the Sea of Cortez with Ed Ricketts, when he was chatting on the upper deck, um, which I can tell you was uh, built next to Barron's Cove Marina and only the local people, basically certain ones were invited up there. It wasn't an open house for people coming in the marina or anything like that. But John would make remarks regarding when there was fill being put in in the area or anything to make sure that there was um, a flow of water from Long Beach coming underneath into the coves um, and endless uh, bits of information. He was listening and very aware of the conversation. And it also, I think, was the very, very start of the discussion of having a sewer plant in Sag Harbor um, on the upper deck. It was a little before John Ward, or around the time Johnny Ward became mayor of the village of Sag Harbor. And John was up there all the time also. Which is, you know, it's interesting about that. It's the sewage treatment plant that Sag Harbor has that has made it a much more popular village and certainly one probably John wouldn't be all that keen to see getting so popular, I'm guessing. 
Well, I don't think he would have liked it to be so popular, but he would have been very pleased with the element of uh, it being pure and looking after our waterways. Right. And a side remark, I think he would abhor the fact that the park was named the Steinbeck Park uh, <laughs> property, but would adore the idea, which we're trying to do, of getting his property as a writer's retreat. This is right up his alley. He he yeah. absolutely would have backed that. Well, that's a, that's a good question. Did he ever? Did he and Elaine ever talk about their legacy and what should or might happen to that property? Or yes, it only in the fact that may, mainly that Elaine knew she was getting the property, and Elaine kept telling me, uh, "Jean, my sister gets it," and that's. Nada, you know, Jean gets it. It was said over and over again by Elaine. Um, of course, I didn't know what John had arranged with Elaine or whether that had been discussed, but if it was going to Elaine, he probably assumed it was going to Jean, who was very close to Elaine, the sisters. So at the event that, that we had, one of the things you said that I was really struck by and you just sort of referenced it again, that, that, that Steinbeck would have been sort of horrified at the, his name on the waterfront park. He was shy and, and not a real big fan of the adulation he got from, from, his, from readers and from others, right? He didn't want to become honorary chairman of the Whalers Festival at all. We had to be begged, and it was under the one condition that no one was ever to be directed to where he lived. Everybody was to tell, everybody in the village, and he was emphatic about this, was to be, the word was to be gotten out <laughs> that you must misdirect people if you happen to know where John is. And that really worked. This word spread <laughs> throughout the village. But um, no, he didn't want to give the speech at the Nobel Prize. He was in a, a terrific observer listener and obviously it all came out in his books P publicly he just did not want to be the center of attention no elaine his wife was the absolute front there for him just totally and um, but that's why i do feel that that property um so wanted to be this writer's retreat it's uh, the university of texas has actually some of the uh, of Steinbeck's work there. They are known throughout the country as the foremost writing program, and, and they already have run have places that are writers' retreats. And they have an idea to have a not too well-known person as part of the year who's just up and coming, and then a well-known writer there. And with a stipulation that they must contribute to the village in some aspect of uh, interaction. Exactly what that'll be, we don't know. And they've offered uh, $13 million as an endowment for the program. They would run the program. And I can just see John would have quietly been just so pleased and behind this sort of enterprise. That's my personal feeling on the subject. Hi, this is Michael Wright. I'm a reporter for the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and 27East.com. I cover East Hampton Town and follow important stories about the environment, including the coming South Fork wind farm, its impact on the fishing industry, and other water quality issues. We follow East Hampton Town and village government, and I'm asking the tough questions and providing you with important answers. My colleagues and I in the editorial department work hard as watchdogs for this community, but we can't do it without our subscribers. If you find the work we're doing valuable to you, please subscribe by visiting 27East.com forward slash subscribe. Thank you very much. So Joe, do you want to talk about where we are with that process as far as the property and what we know as far as the purchase of it and where it is staged? From my understanding, so so what's complicated here is that the Southampton town has stepped up to come up with the bulk of the purchase price for the property 
uh, preserving it for historic value and, and also, you know, as a, as a community resource. The problem with using CPF funds is that the CPF is limited by an appraisal that's done on the property and figures haven't been released yet. And, and you know, and they're, they're, it's, a, it's a property negotiation, so they're not gonna talk actual figures, but we can assume that, I believe the asking price right now is 15.7 million, I think is where it stands now. Where did it come um, down a little bit? Was it? I, it? It came down from, I believe it started at 17 and came down to 16 and now it's a little lower. Um, whatever the, the actual asking price is, it's let's just say 15 million for, for sake of argument. I'm gonna guess the CPF is probably uh, well below that, probably several million dollars below that because when the property value is assessed, the fact that it was John Steinbeck's house has no bearing on the CPF mm -hmm. appraisal of the property. So, so, you know, it's just as a basic piece of property worth a little less now. So they have to make up the gap. And, and apparently the Sag Harbor Partnership has done a nice job of raising money. They've raised over a million dollars, I believe has been pledged. Fred Thiel has gotten a half a million dollar grant um, from the state to help with this. There's still a little bit of a gap and and the, the, the folks who are trying to preserve the property have said they're a little short right now. I believe the figure they threw around at our event was a million dollars. And I, I would bet that sounds about right, uh, that they still need to come up with some. There's also some money. Um, I believe the University of Texas may be able to help pitch in. But a lot of this is happening behind the scenes because it is a, uh, it's a, it's a real estate purchase. And nobody wants to negotiate in public. And, you know, uh, Mayor Jim LaRocca, has now come out in support of the project, although that's complicated things a little because I know he has some different thoughts about how it should be run and, and things like that. But I think in general, uh, the village being on, on board will be helpful for it in the long run. I, it's worth taking a step back and just tipping your hat to Catherine Zoka from Canio's Books, who her this was her idea from the start was to preserve this as a writing, uh, a writer's retreat it's a tall order when she brought it up and we all sort of went, Oh, that would be great. But, you know, we keep saying it's Catherine's uh, thing. Um, uh, Zoko. It is except Kathleen Mulcahy, who's mayor, the former mayor, not the current mayor also mentioned this very early on and brought it up. I don't know if she had been in conversation with Catherine Zoko or not, but a couple of years ago, Gotcha. Kathleen Mulcahy mentioned this to me in private, that this was a great idea. Was that before it went on the market? Possibly. I don't know the dates of when it went on the market. I gather they're a million short. And if anyone wants to donate, please send a check. No, to the Sag Harbor Partnership and mark on it for the Steinbeck, uh, Steinbeck House or property so it doesn't get confused with the park is my thought. So our million dollar listeners out there, you've got your marching orders now. Yeah, but any exactly. any amount goes any amount, towards right. this. It often goes towards people matching it or anything. I don't know. But they're looking for money and it can be small amounts now. It doesn't have to be any big amounts. That's right. Look how they save so, the cinema. I don't think they've pushed this enough. Uh, yeah. The partnership has been doing so many different things. So it's so not a maybe you have to put a can on the um, on the desk at the workshop like you did with the, the yeah. cinema sign. <laughs> let the let the let the kids leave their quarters in the in the little. Uh, well, it certainly would get the word out more. Right. That, that right. We're trying to. This is what has has not been done uh, early enough in my feeling getting the word out that this was we're trying to get this property and that whole element brian you may know more or feel in that direction i uh I, as i mentioned at the session that we had i'm offended by the price of the property you know it's uh it just seems like an insane amount of money but the fact that you have this uh what's left uh to remember the this nobel prize winner uh, one of only 13 Americans who've ever won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Um, you know, it's, I think it's great to have a park uh, and uh, naming it after him is great. 
but to be able to have something that is um, uh, a writer's retreat that kind of echoes his his uh, his role here in Sag Harbor, uh, I think would be wonderful. I took a uh, a ride over there the other day, uh, actually the morning of the session that we were doing, and uh, I hadn't been to that property since Annette and I were there probably about 12, 15 years ago, I'll bet, and, uh, and Gene Boone took us through the property. Uh, and I was reminded what a sweet piece of real estate that is. I mean, it is gorgeous. It's surrounded, uh, uh, it's on a peninsula that juts out into the cove. They've really taken care of the property. Uh, the day that I was over there, they, it looks like it had just been mowed. Uh, and it's just a sweet, wonderful piece of property. Um, and his writing his writing um, studio is still there perched at the- uh, The gazebo is still there. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the gazebo is still there. Uh, so uh, I'm very curious to see what the, uh, the the final plan is. You know, not a kind of outline a little bit about what I understand to be the the, the problem of the um, uh, the program. Uh, I'm interested to see uh, how much time that uh, writers there and residents would uh, spend with uh, students. Um, you know, it's a, it's a retreat. It's a solitary kind of environment, uh, and it doesn't beg public participation. We have promise that people, it would be in small groups at specific times be allowed to go visit the property. There are all sorts of arrangements, I think, that haven't been finalized at all till this property is finalized with the University of Texas, which uh, actually has a big alumni group in New York City, which the university has said they would try and tap to raise, they have money to get money together towards this property there, the uh, Texas. It seems like it makes sense. You know, that actually is a really, I think pairing with them is really smart because you're tapping into an organization that has a much wider universe than any of us here in Sag Harbor might. Brendan, I wanted to ask what you thought about. So part of the controversy, I think with this is using CPF money to buy the property. And then we're sort of touching on the idea that the CPF generally is about preserving land for public use, but this would be sort of restricted public use to some degree because um, it wouldn't just be open to the public where you could necessarily come and go as you please. That That's a little bit of a wrinkle in the use of CPF funds with this. The Community Preservation Fund at this point is 20 years old and they keep finding novel uses for it, right? So right now you have Sag Harbor is exploring the possibility of the CPF being used to buy a property near the school so the school can have athletic fields. And that raises questions of should the CPF be buying property for the use of a school district? The way you can get around that is to offer public access to it. But will that public access be sustained when some people from the public go there and, and ruin the brand new turf field that they want to put in? So there are unanswered questions about what the CPF can be used for. And there's people on other sides of how it can be used. Also in Sag Harbor, you have the example of the cinema where the CPF was used to guarantee that the cinema's facade would be restored and preserved and also that the building would be a cultural institution. That had never been done before with the CPF, but they found a new use for it. So could you- that was That was kind of the first unique use of the CPF that you're talking about. That was the big one for sure. And it raised a lot of eyebrows. And it, it went and it, you know, it went right along and it happened anyway. So, and who, you know, who's going to pose the legal challenge? Is somebody really going to pose a legal challenge to the CPF buying John Steinbeck's house and turning it into a writer's retreat? Like, who's that invested in stopping that from happening uh, by arguing to a court that may not agree that that's an improper use of the CPF? I would say that public access doesn't have to be 365, right? There are lots of facilities that are seasonal. So you could have a property that you purchase and say it can only be used four times a year. And then, you know, one individual may stay there to write longer than that, but it's only open to the public on certain weekends, or it's only open to the elementary school once a year. So I think you can get away with having some restrictions that 
Yes, it is a public facility, but that doesn't mean it is open 365. Well, it, it sounds like they, you know, this this cooperation that's planned with the school districts to do some kind of educational programs might they might be looking at that as a way to to say that there's public use or public access in 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 that form. I think that's kind of what's being bandied about that that if if students had access there or if the writers that are that are coming in the retreat are, are going to the school districts then 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 there's some there's some some public benefit um to that anyway in in those terms and they have said that they would take people out to the property small groups at an occasion you know at certain occasions i think the uh town um is very much ready for this and will go for it. There is, uh, so I had a conversation with the mayor about this the other day, and the uh, the road is illegal. I mean, it's it's not even in the village system, um, and they need to make in order to make improvements, uh, so that um, it, it's technically not even a public road. I don't think. Uh, but there are, I think, eight or nine other people who live down there uh, uh, along that street before you get to John's house. Um, the In order to make it a legal road, it's for one thing, you'd have to pave it, put drainage in, and to you would have to widen it by four feet. Uh, so now you're now you're eating into the neighbor's property. Um, and if you drive down there, the hedges are literally built right up. It's a very quaint, sweet little lane. You know, it's like one of these little country places. But it's um, uh, for uh, uh, making this, making public access to this property, which I don't think that the neighbors are thrilled about the idea about making this a, uh, a public park. And, and you know, so just to be clear, I, I raised the question, but I would argue this is exactly what the CPF is about. It's about preserving historical uh, um, elements in your community. That's, that's one of the things that it was meant to do. And I think um, this really fits nicely. And it is a little outside the box of how we normally use the CPF, but I think it fits the, the spirit of the law perfectly. And, and um, as Brendan said, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of people out there who would object to that. Also, I mean, Sag Harbor has always felt like, you know, it's not, it doesn't have a lot of open space around it to be purchased. So I think that there's always been this sort of thinking that the CPF could be used to buy properties that don't fit the open space definition, but in small villages where you're out of open space, that being able to spend that money in those communities, that's the way to do it. Um, since you don't really have a lot of forests left in Sac Harbor to mm -hmm. put that money towards. Shall we, shall I tell please. a few more stories on Yes, John? please. Um, well, there's one when um, he had planned to take his two sons along with Elaine to England or not England to Europe for a year. And um, he wanted someone to accompany him to uh, shepherd the boys or the tutor. So he interviewed this young fellow and uh, right after, I think it was the same, he'd interviewed him in the morning and he was up at the house later in the day. And he said, uh, Nada, what do you think about this? I've interviewed somebody to go along, a young fellow, very young fellow, but he's gay. So I said to John, well, you know, he's gay. So what's the problem? And then I discovered it was Terence McNally who became this famous writer subsequently. Um, but I love the fact that um, Terence was the person who had been sent to him to interview, to go along with them somehow. I think Terence was only about 19. I haven't figured it out in the dates in 1960s, how old Terence actually was. Um, Another little element that I uh, I would say very much in my mind, I phoned Elaine up the morning of John's birthday. And um, I said, Elaine, what are you doing for John's birthday? And Elaine said nothing, which sort of took me back by surprise in a way. So I said, oh, do you want to come up for a drink? And um, I'll bake him a cake. 
So they came up for a drink and I'd bake this cake and they're having drinks and things. And it's, you know, late in the afternoon, we hadn't planned on dinner. And um, I thought, what am I gonna do? I have this cake, John's sitting in this comfy chair. I can't say get up and come to the table. So I plopped this cake down lit on the stool that I'd grabbed, put in front. And uh, John blew out the candle and really seemed very pleased. I gather from Elaine, he hadn't had a cake for a long time. And the net result was it was the last, it was John's last birthday. He died that year. Oh, so you made him his last birthday cake. That's pretty sweet. Yes. And I, I really feel very good about that. So I was just befitting in its own right. Brian, we talk, we've talked a lot about how Steinbeck uh, in, you know, had an influence on the village and on the people in the village. Uh, the village had a big influence on him too, right? You've been rereading uh, Winter of Our Discontent, which seems very much to be set in a town very much like Sag Harbor. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I read uh, Winter of Our Discontent when I first came to town about 35 years ago, 40 years ago. And uh, so uh, I decided that it kind of in anticipation of this conversation about Steinbeck, I'd reread it. Uh, interestingly, I didn't think much of it as a novel when I first read it. Uh, now I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to appreciate it more. Uh, and yes, there is um, a, certainly an echo of Sag Harbor in it. It's uh, it's, a, it's set in New Baytown, which is a, a kind of a, a town that had been a whaling place that um, uh, the main character has kind of fallen on hard times, uh, Ethan Hawley. And um, I talked about at the, at the session that we had the other day about uh, this um, part in the book where Ethan Hawley wakes up in the middle of the night, it's three o'clock in the morning and he can't sleep. Uh, he has uh, lost the family business and he's now working in a clerk in that business, which is the, the, the grocery store downtown. And um, he is put upon by all the pressures. He sees his, his wife wants more. Uh, the, uh, uh, there's this feeling of materialism that is growing in the, in the town, uh, which kind of like echoes what's going on in Sag Harbor right now. And there's also very much a part of the us versus them. It's the newcomers uh, versus the people who have been there for generations and generations, like the Hawleys in the book. And um, he gets up in the middle of the night and he walks uh, from his house uh, down to what uh, is referred to in the book as Old Harbor. It's a section of the town. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, well, interestingly, there is this kind of like, uh, geographical, uh, geological similarity between Sag Harbor then and, and New Baytown in the book. And uh, if you, if Steinbeck would have had to walk past what, if he was Ethan Hawley walking from his house in the middle of the night, uh, past what would have been uh, the first boat building, boat works in Sag Harbor, something from the early 1700s, which was down at the end of Green Street. And then if you, uh, if Steinbeck was conflating two aspects of the village to create this place, there was an area uh, in uh, uh, the current marina area, the, uh, the harbor where the breakwater is. And uh, in the days of the whalers, uh, it was, um, uh, there was a, a ridge that went out, uh, a spit of land out to a little island that formed the eastern part of the harbor. And when whaling went down, it went down quick. And they would run these boats up. They would, uh, they would strip them, scuttle them, and then run the boats up into that part of the harbor where they would sit as wrecks. And in the book, Ethan Hawley goes to this part of town where he finds this connection to his family's past uh, I think he finds this emotional connection where he feels he should be, uh, and he retreats there. Uh, and it's very much, I think, something that people who have lived here for generations may have felt as this town turned from 
a whaling town into an industrial town, and then ultimately from an industrial town, which is when Steinbeck first arrives, uh, it had been a thriving commercial industrial town. You had factories going. Uh, and uh, suddenly in his time here, that aspect, that working class aspect of the town begins to erode. And the town begins this evolution into a second home community and um, the, the place that we have now, which is probably a much more foreign community than Steinbeck would have liked, but it is what it is. I think, I think, and that's correct. It's relevant to, I mean, that it translates to the current times very much. I mean, these issues don't change that much over the years, do they? I mean, they're, they're really universal issues. Can I just throw in something here about the old Whalers Festival? So uh, there's a, a couple of connections that I wanted to make here. One is that um, uh, we're talking about Steinbeck uh, and his role in Sag Harbor. And um, he uh, he he's involved in the in the founding of the old Whalers Festival because I think he's part of this group that's talking about how to do it. And uh, I mentioned uh, at the session the other night uh, that um, after the first year, uh, Steinbeck came to the group and said, "Look, you need to kind of juice this up a little bit. You need to have some kind of a contest." And, um, and they come up with the idea of this rowing race, the whaleboat races. But one of the things, Nada, I wanted to, and you, you kind of alluded to it the other night, what really put the, the, it on the map, and this goes to specifically to Steinbeck and his relationship with Lyndon Johnson, who, uh, so by 64, 65, uh, Johnson's president, what a lot of people didn't know was that Steinbeck wrote, uh, ghost wrote a couple of speeches for Lyndon Johnson. And he was frankly kind of bullish on the Vietnam War. Uh, and he had um, uh, written some very sympathetic pieces about the war. And uh, so he had, a, he had a good relationship with Johnson and Johnson's cabinet. Uh, and I think, Nadia, you mentioned that Lady Bird Johnson had gone to school with Elaine Steinbeck. So there was this kind of Texas personal relationship that was going on. What Steinbeck did, however, that really elevated it was he went to um, uh, uh, the, the State Department and said, look, can I get the Coast Guard involved? And uh, I want to expand on these whaleboat races and make something which eventually became known as the International Whaleboat Competition. And they got the, the Coast Guard, the U.S. Coast Guard, to donate these Matamoy boats, which were much larger. They were built very similar to the whale boats that whalers would have used. They were eight-person boats, I think. And with those boats and with Steinbeck's connection, they attracted teams from Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Portugal, um, uh, and I think probably two or three other countries that sent teams here to Sag Harbor to compete and race in these boats. And they would go out, probably race out about a mile and back. They were harpooning a fake whale. Um, and it was a blast. And it, was, it got such press coverage that uh, the New York Daily News, which they had a, for their Sunday edition, they had a color section. They devoted like a two-page spread on the whale boat races. And the big thing was it got covered. ABC's Wide World of Sports came out and covered the event. And I remember Bob Frieda telling me one guy, the, one of the producers from ABC Wide World of Sports came over to him and said, you know, if you played your card right, cards right, this could be bigger than the Kentucky Derby. It was that, it became, it was that big of a thing. And they, and if you look at pictures and not, you, you would remember, we get pretty decent crowds for the Harbor Fest, but they were nothing. They're nothing like what the old Whalers Festival used to bring in. And to illustrate the creativity of an industriousness of the people of Sag Harbor, uh, some, uh, a, a brilliant idea came with all of these people flooding into town on basically three main arteries, the organizers of the old Whalers Festival decided to set up toll booths 
on each of the main roads, 114 and Hampton Street, and they were shaking down the, uh, uh, the, 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 the guests as they were coming in. And they continued to do that until I think the New York State Department of Transportation gave them a cease and desist order. The guys decided to put up a sign up at the Bridgehampton Monument there with a direction that looked like a New York State sign pointed, just pointing to Sag Harbor to try and get people to come in. Until we started the Wellness Festival, no one had heard of Sag Harbor at all. But this was, we needed to bring in uh, people to support the village, which yes, the Whaling Town village had, uh, and the factory element were uh, no longer viable parts of the economy. But the parades were five, six deep down Main Street and um, they got rather rowdy. And that's when about the third year when the North Sea Fire Department uh, got out of hand, and that's what ended. Literally ended having the parade because they had to end it as it got just. Even back then, huh? That's another tradition. Uh, it's it's so much. It's such a pleasure to talk with you, Nato. You you know, just to hear the stories. I love I love the connections. So good though. This was great. Yeah, it's been fun. I've enjoyed this. Thank you for taking the time. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sagharborexpress.com Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.